Welcome to The Rock Podcast. Here in Session 3 of our Answers in Genesis Conference, Dr. Mitchell brings a message entitled, A Day Means a Day. Well, you know, watching the news this afternoon a little bit, you know, it's kind of, I don't recommend it if you don't want to become uh, depressed a little bit. I mean, but from our point of view, it's very exciting. Because the things that are happening, the major protests all over the world against Israel, uh, Russia moving into place, Turkey now sending a flotilla down uh, as, an, uh, as being received as an act of war by Israel, and uh, all kinds of things happening, just as the scriptures have declared. And so in these last moments that we're in, you know, it's so fitting and appropriate to have somebody who's going to stir us up a little bit and say, listen, firm and faithful to the end, all the way. Amen? Amen. And so, uh, Dr. Tommy, you're going to come and school us <laughs> with that sassy attitude. <laughs> hey, thank all for right, you come again. on up here. Let's welcome him back. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Know, I don't want you to do this right now, but if you were to take your Bibles and open them to Genesis chapter 1, just put your finger there and then do this when you get home. Open your Bibles to Genesis 1, put your finger there, then turn your mind off. Now that'll be easier for some of you than others. I get it. Okay. Okay. Open to Genesis 1, turn your mind off, then read the text. Just read Genesis 1. Just read it. If you just read the text of Genesis chapter 1, what do you get the idea that the days in Genesis are? What kind of day? 24 day. Ordinary day as we normally understand the term. If you just read the text, it sure looks like God's trying to communicate the idea of ordinary days, right? Now, if you read through the rest of Scripture, do you get the idea anywhere in Scripture that the days in Genesis are anything other than ordinary days? Nope. I think it's pretty clear. God's Word says these are ordinary days. So why don't many Christians and Christian leaders believe the days in Genesis 1 are, in fact, ordinary 24-hour days? I mean, I think we just agreed. God's Word clearly says those are ordinary days. The vast majority of Christians and Christian leaders say those days aren't days. So if God's word says one thing and they believe something else, they must be getting information from some other source, right? Now, what would that source of information be? The world, man's ideas. We're taking man's ideas and using them to reinterpret the word of God. Now, if you take man's fallible ideas and use them to reinterpret the word of God, is the Bible then your final authority? What is? Man is. So next week, next month, next year, when man changes his idea, comes up with a new concept, you get to re-reinterpret your Bible. Where does that end? If I go to any church in the world and read this verse, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Am I in too much trouble? No, I'm pretty safe with Genesis 1-1. It's Genesis 1, verse 2, the rest of the chapter. I'm running for my life. Why? Because I preach and teach the following. Because this is what God's word clearly indicates. On the first day, he created earth, space, time, and light. On the second day, the atmosphere, the firmament, the expanse. On the third day, the dry land and plants. On the fourth day, sun, moon, and stars. On the fifth day, the flying and sea creatures. On the sixth day, land, animals, and man. What an almost unimaginable concept to most Christians. Those are ordinary days? Absolutely. Who said? God said. But see, there's a problem. The Bible's not true. The rock layers show the earth is millions of years old. You got to believe me. I'm a scientist. You know how silly that sounds when you think about it? But that's exactly what happened. Up until, say, the mid-1700s, most people in the church accepted the Bible as reliable and authoritative. Noah's flood was a global, cataclysmic, catastrophic event. 
But it was about this time that a group of scientists and philosophers who rejected the authority, the reliability of Scripture said, well, you know, we don't really buy this whole Bible thing. And this whole thing about the flood, well, we're kind of skeptical about that. And even if it was a global flood, it wasn't all that destructive. And most of us don't even believe in the flood happened. But if we don't believe in the flood, we've got to be able to explain these sedimentary rocks that we see. Here's an idea. What if the slow processes of sedimentation we see in our world today, what if those processes have gone on for much longer than we originally thought? We can explain these rocks. We don't need the Bible. You know, the earth is much older than we originally thought. The earth is tens of thousands to perhaps hundreds of thousands, maybe even a few million years old. And this idea became more popular and more popular in scientific and philosophic circles. And then in the early 1800s, where do you think this idea became popular? in the church, particularly the intellectual elite of the Church of England. They said, wait a minute, you know, these scientists, they're scientists, they're pretty smart guys. They've determined that the earth is much older than we would, you know, understand from what Scripture plainly teaches. So what we're going to do is we'll take the millions of years and put them in the Bible. Folks, that's when the church lost its grip on the authority of Scripture. And it was about that time that a young man went off to college to begin his studies. He originally went to college to become a physician, like his father and his grandfather. Pretty, pretty quickly decided that medicine wasn't for him. So it was decided he would become a country clergyman. So his field of study changed to theology. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Charles Darwin, the man who more than any other is credited with coalescing this idea of biological evolution that over long periods of time one you know, form of creature can change into another kind of creature. And people have said in the past, well, Darwin was a great scientist, and he came to all these great conclusions. He helped us understand. Actually, Darwin wasn't a trained scientist. He was a theologian. He was an observer. Now, how he put those conclusions together, I would greatly argue with. But he, he, he wrote books on barnacles, and he was a great observer in many ways. But he was not a trained scientist. And you know something else? Early in his life, he rejected the Word of God. This is what he wrote in his autobiography. Whilst on board the Beagle, I was quite orthodox. But I'd gradually come by this time to see that the Old Testament from its manifestly false history of the world was no more to be trusted than the sacred books of the Hindus or the beliefs of any barbarian. Early on in his life, he rejected the reliability of Scripture. While on board the ship, the Beagle, as he was traveling around the world, he was reading the works of a man named Charles Lyell. The book was called Principles of Geology with three volumes. The Principles of Geology. And that book set forth the idea that the earth is millions of years old. Darwin bought into the idea of the millions of years. And I submit that that's more important even than this whole idea of evolution because without the millions of years, you can't even propose evolution. And see, it was on this, this fertile ground, if you will, of the millions of years that Darwin planted his observations and his ideas. I mean, we would argue that the earth is roughly 6,000 years old. Where do you get that idea? Well, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. I've got a history book that you can use with the genealogies and chronologies and come up with a reasonable estimate of the Earth's age based on Scripture. And numerous scholars over the centuries have done that, and they generally come up with an age of 5,800 to 6,200, depending on you know, how you interpret certain passages. But we're certainly not talking about millions of years. I mean, would anybody believe that 6,000 years ago, the earth was covered by vast oceans. The first simple life form assembled itself. And then that life form went from that one simple creature to man in 6,000 years. No takers? I'm checking. Okay, you got 6,000 years going once. Single cell creature to man in 6,000 years. Going once, going twice. No takers. Okay, we have a unanimous vote. Maybe the first time it happened here. You're welcome. Okay. <laughs> Certainly in the Baptist churches, I've been in this only unanimous vote they've ever had. I don't know. So I'm just making a general statement. But nonetheless, uh, we've had a unanimous vote. We all agree that can't happen. Why? Why can't it happen? And it's amazing. We just had a unanimous vote. We all agreed that the, that the situation I say that couldn't happen. I ask you why nobody answers. Well, guess what? You did the same thing that every other church has ever done that I've had that question in. They get deadly quiet. But I'm going to tell you the best answer I ever got. About a year or so ago, I asked this question. It was a pretty good-sized church. We had like 1,500 people in the sanctuary. And it's amazing how quiet 1,500 people can get all of a sudden. You could have heard hair move. That's how quiet it got. Well, if I'm, if I'm really still, he won't call on me. Okay? So this place got deadly quiet. And after about 10 seconds, the cutest little boy you ever saw, about third row up on my right side, jumped up in the pew and said, Because it's just stupid. And... <laughs> Now, I don't know that I would have put it that way, 
But I still don't have a better answer. It's patently absurd. I mean, if evolution happened that fast, you'd go home tonight, turn on the news, and said, well, the state legislature is such and such and so and so, and Congress is going to do this and so and so on the ballgame. And today, a dog turned into a giraffe. <laughs> but what if you've got vast, almost unimaginable time periods? Maybe, just maybe, you can make yourself believe that one kind of creature can change into another. And see, that's why this is such an emotional issue for the, for the evolutionists. They have to have the millions and billions of years. Who says? They do. The Darwinian revolution began when it became obvious that the earth was very ancient rather than having been created only 6,000 years ago. This finding was the snowball that started the whole avalanche. Well, see, that explains why the evolutionists are so tied into the millions of years. But what about Christians? The vast majority of Christians will tell you the Bible's not, the biblical chronologies aren't reliable or not important, that the millions of years are true. Well, Tommy, those dating methods... How'd you get all those letters after your name? You ever talked to a scientist in your whole life? They've got these dating methods. They've proven that the earth is millions of years old. Is that really true? Actually, it's not. There are several hundred processes that have been used to date things. It's dating methods. And the way it works is you've got something you can analyze or test or check or measure in the present. Whether it's decay of a radioisotope or sedimentation in a river delta or erosion in Niagara Falls or change in the earth's magnetic field. These are things you can measure or analyze in the present. Now, measuring and analyzing those things in the present, that's science. Science is testable, observable, repeatable. But when you take the rate of change of these processes and you start making estimates about the past, is that science? No, that's called assumption. You have to make assumptions to make those conclusions work. You're assuming that the rate of change of whatever process or particular method you're using has gone on unchanged over time. You're assuming that the area or the sample you're analyzing has not been contaminated or altered. You're even assuming you know the initial conditions. Those assumptions are not testable. Now, the secular world says they're, they're logical and therefore we're, we're considering them reliable and scientific. What I'm going to tell you is you can't test those things. And having said that, if you take all the different dating methods that have been used, more than 90% of the dating methods that have been used give an age of the earth less than a billion years. Only a handful of these so-called accurate scientific dating methods will give you an age of the earth in the 4.5, you know, 4.8 billion year range. Basically, I tell you this, if you tell me how old you think the earth is, anywhere from roughly 3,800 years to 4.8 billion years, I'll find you a dating method that works for you. They're all based on assumption. Now, the most commonly cited dating method is the so-called radiometric dating methods. You know, potassium, argon, rubidium, strontium, and we'll get to carbon-14 in a minute, but it involves the breakdown of a radioisotope. So what I'm going to do in the next three minutes, I'm going to make you an expert physicist. I'm going to make you an expert in radiometric dating methods. So that way you will never be confused about this again. And it's going to go kind of fast, okay? I mean, if I'm going to make you an expert, I've only got a certain amount of time. So you're going to have to kind of suck the data in. So you're going to have to have your you know, seats upright and your tray tables up in the locked position. And you're, are you ready to go? Okay, I'm going to make you an expert. Are you ready? Okay, are you ready? Okay, well, it's coming whether you like it or not because I have the clicker, but I'd like to think you are at least slightly enthusiastic. Nearly every textbook in science magazine teaches that the Earth is billions of years old, and the primary dating method used for determining this is what is called radioisotope dating or radiometric dating. Now, this is a reliable method for measuring absolute ages of rocks and the age of the Earth, right? Huh. First off, many scientists now regard the age of the Earth to be between 4.55 and 4.6 billion years old. Okay, so if this method is reliable and accurate, why the 50 million year discrepancy? That seems like a lot, but let's get into some details here and see what's going on. Keep in mind that there's all kinds of scientific jargon on this topic, and so we'll just present a very straightforward, simplified version of the process. Radiometric dating is the process of estimating the ages of rocks based on the decay of radioactive elements in them. Basically, there are certain kinds of atoms in nature that are unstable and spontaneously decay into other kinds of atoms. For instance, uranium will radioactively decay through a series of steps until it becomes the stable element called lead. The original element is called the parent element, and the end result is called the daughter element. Radioisotope dating is commonly used to date igneous rocks, rocks which formed when hot molten material cooled and solidified. The dating clock started when the rock cooled. During the molten state, it is assumed that the intense heat forced any gaseous daughter elements to escape. 
it is assumed that once the rock cooled, no more atoms escaped, and any daughter element now found in the rock is a result of radioactive decay since that rock formed. The decay rate is measured in terms of half-life. That is, the length of time it takes half of the remaining atoms of a radioactive parent element to decay. Now, of course, that can be measured in a laboratory, and it is assumed that since we know the decay rate, we can calculate backwards and come up with the age of the rock. But is that all there is to it? Here's where it gets tricky. It's true we can measure a decay rate using observational science, but there's another kind of science that is required to accurately calculate dates for rocks, and that is what we call historical science. Historical science deals with the things in the past, and therefore it cannot be repeated and tested. Dating methods require both types of science. Because in order to get accurate rock dates, one would have to accurately know both the decay rate and the initial conditions of the rock sample, right? Since radioisotope dating uses both types of science, we can't directly measure the ages of rock. There are assumptions involved. For instance, how do we know what the initial conditions were in the rock sample? How do we know the amounts of parent or daughter elements now in that sample haven't been altered by other processes in the past? How does someone know the decay rate has remained constant since the rock formed? The answer is, they don't. Let's simplify here and talk about a typical hourglass. Let's say you walk into a room and you see an hourglass with sand at the top and sand at the bottom, and some sand sprinkling from the top chamber to the bottom. Well, observational science would allow us to see and measure the sand, and then calculate how long the hourglass has been running, right? We could make our sand measurements and then calculate when the hourglass was turned over, right? Well, those calculations could be wrong, because we may have failed to consider some major assumptions, like was there any sand at the bottom when the hourglass was turned over? Has any sand been added or taken out of the hourglass? Has the sand always been falling at a constant rate? Since we did not observe the initial conditions when the hourglass started, and we haven't been watching the sand all the time since then, we must make assumptions. All three of those assumptions can affect our time calculations. Now, of course, there's more to understanding all of this, but enough said. See, you're now expert. You're dismissed. You can go home. See, this is not that difficult. And we're going to start off with the mo- one of the most common ones. How many people have heard it said that carbon-14 dating proves the Earth is millions of years old? I mean, I've already had several people ask me about that just today. Even if carbon-14 were as accurate and reliable as the secular world wants you to think it is, it is not something that can be used to date things that are supposedly millions of years old. The outer limit for carbon-14 dating would be like 80 to 100,000 years. Uh, and that's just because the half-life of carbon-14 is 5,730 years. It can't last in samples for millions of years. So that's a very common misconception. But I found it kind of curious that a group of scientists got together and carbon-14 dated some diamonds. Does anybody know how long it's supposed to take diamonds to form in nature? What secular estimates for diamond formation are? Anybody know? It's supposed to take hundreds of millions to perhaps a billion years. Now, I saw Superman do it one time in seven seconds. <laughs> Lois Lane handed him a piece of coal, and he squoze it. Now, that means apply positive pressure with your hand, in case, for those of you who are out here. But anyway, he squoze that thing, and he opened his hand, and he had a diamond, and it was cut. Superman's bad, except for Superman. It's supposed to take like a billion years for diamonds to form. But the reason I decided to carbon-14 date diamonds is because the structure of diamonds, there's no chance of any significant contamination. So nonetheless, they sent these diamonds off to the lab. They carbon-14 dated them, and they found out that those diamonds are 58,000 years old. Now, we would dispute the 58,000-year date for methodologic issues. But nonetheless, if diamonds really are a billion years old, there should be no carbon-14 in them. But if diamonds are 58,000 years old, they can't be a billion years old. So if you're using diamonds to prove the earth is old, you've got a problem really pretty much either way you go. They were digging a ventilation shaft in a mine in Australia some years ago, and they hit a layer of basalt. And in this basalt, they found wood. And they said, that's pretty amazing. We didn't expect to find you know, wood in this basalt. I wonder how old the wood is. So the first thing they did, they sent the rock off to the lab and had it dated. The rock dated 45 million years old. Then they sent the wood off to the lab. The wood dated 45,000 years old. Question, how do you get 45,000-year-old wood inside a 45-million-year-old rock? I mean, 45,000 years ago, the Aborigines digged in there and said, boy, they're really going to be surprised when they dig this out. <laughs> it's going to be like a big joke on them in about 50,000 years. Mount St. Helens, May 1980. The top inside of this mountain just erupts. It, uh, I've been to Mount St. Helens, one of the most amazing places I've ever visited. But they actually decided that they wanted to, to uh, 
radiometrically date some rocks that, that formed in the lava dome. It's at the top of Mount St. Helens. This lava dome formed pretty much since the initial eruption. So they went and took some rock samples, and using potassium argon dating, they dated the rock. Now remember, remember the video. When the lava is flowing, when the lava is molten, there's no daughter element. The radiometric clock does not start until the rock hardens, until the lava cools. So anyway, they took these rock samples and sent them off to the lab and found out these rocks were 340,000 to 2.8 million years old. Which right away shows that's not the most precise range of dates you've ever seen. It's like a 700% difference. Uh, but the big issue is this. Those rocks are less than 12 years old when you sent them to the lab. See, this lava dome has formed on the CBS Evening News. We've got videos over the years of the lava dome forming. So these methods that are so accurate and so reliable, they've caused most people to openly question and doubt the Word of God, have just measured a 12-year-old rock to be at least 340,000 years old. We've gone around the world to places where we have historical records of when certain lava flows occurred. And again, using potassium argon dating, we dated the rocks. The eruption in Sicily in 122 BC, the rocks dated 170,000 to 330,000 years old. Not real close. The eruption in Sicily in 1972, 210,000 to 490,000 years old. Which is curious because the more recent eruption dated older than the older eruption. The eruption at Mount St. Helens in 1986, 300,000 to 400,000 years old. New Zealand, 1954, 3.3 to 3.7 million years old. Hawaii, 1959, 1.7 to 15.3 million years old. Wow, with accuracy like that, no wonder we doubt the Bible. You see, when you've got historical records that tell you when certain lava flows occurred, if you radiometrically date those rocks, the radiometric dates don't match the historical dates. But when you don't know how the rocks are, you assume the dating methods work, which is actually quite convenient. In general, dates in the correct ballpark are assumed to be correct and are published. But those in disagreement with other data are seldom published, nor are the discrepancies fully explained. This is what? The Grand Canyon. What is the Grand Canyon? It's the biggest hole in the ground in the world, right? Look at those rock layers. Those rock layers are obviously millions of years old. And like we said this morning, you've got two options. Either a whole lot of time and a little bit of water cause those rock layers or a whole lot of water and a little bit of time. And in many of those layers, you find fossils. And again, how something become a fossil? We're going to talk about this more in the next session. Something gets buried very rapidly. Like I said, at the time of the flood, lots of things got buried rapidly. Now, given the right circumstances, right conditions, how long does it take to make a fossil? Here's a petrified ham. This ham was on a table in a mining shed in New Zealand, got covered by an avalanche. They dug it out 50 years later. The ham had petrified. How long does it take to make a fossil? 50 years or less. Sometime in that 50-year time period, this ham had petrified. I always hesitate to show the next slide because I don't like to show things that are creepy. But, I mean, sometimes the creepiness is outweighed by the educational value of it. So... I'm, I'm going to show it because I'll be gone in a couple of days and you can just take me for any, but anyway. But nonetheless, I always hesitate to show this because this is kind of a creepy and you'll probably have nightmares and stuff. So you may want to hang on to the person next to you because this is a really scary fossil. This is a fossil hat. <laughs> How do I know this hat's not three million years old? I asked that a couple of months ago and the guy in the back row yelled out, because it's out of style, which is a great answer. I love that one. That's one of my favorites of all time. Well, actually, the, the, re the reason is this. One, there were no hat factories three million years ago. And if evolution were true three million years ago, we'd been more like apes than humans. We wouldn't have worn hats anyway, right? This hat was found in a mine after 50 years. It had petrified. Here's a petrified flour sack. It took three weeks. Math question, or history question, is three weeks less than a million years. <laughs> From 1924 to 1988, there was a visitor sign above the entrance to Carlsbad Caverns that said Carlsbad was at least 260 million years old. In 1988, the sign was changed to read 7 to 10 million years old. Then for a little while, the sign read it was 2 million years old. Now the sign's gone. <laughs> It got younger and younger, and they took that bad boy down, right? 
If the days in Genesis aren't days, what are they? For 15 years of my life, I was what you would call a theistic evolutionist. God created, used evolution. What about the days in Genesis? Well, God said day, but he meant millions of years. It was like allegory. He meant geologic time frame, geologic time periods. Well, what about the gap theory? Some people accept this idea that between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, there's a gap. And, you know, that's when God, you know, created and God destroyed everything. That's where the rock layers came from. It's a way to put the millions of years in the Bible. But, frankly, if you just read the text, there's no gap there. And I'm not aware of any major English translation that interprets the words in such a way that as the gap theorists want you to interpret them. It's not, it's not a normal way to interpret Scripture, but it's a way to desperately put the millions of years where they don't belong. And again, whether it's the gap theory or the day-age theory or theistic evolution, there are any number of reinterpretations of Genesis we have to deal with every single day. But all these reinterpretations have one common factor. You know what that is? The millions of years. You've got to find a place to put the millions of years. When I talk to pastors and church leaders and seminary professors and people in church pews all over the world, there's one common thing that comes up. Well, time of the days in Genesis can't be ordinary days. Why? Because of the millions of years. Why do you look at this sentence? Back in my father's day, it took 10 days to drive across the Australian outback during the day. Now, do you understand the meaning of that sentence? It's a very straightforward sentence. It has the word day in it three times. And in the same sentence, the word day has three different meanings. Back in my father's day, the word day means what? It's an indefinite period of time. It's a season of life. It took 10 days. What does it mean there? 24-hour day. During the day means what? The daylight portion of the day. We have the same word in the sentence three different times. Nobody in this room has any difficulty understanding it. Why? We understand the rules of grammar, the linguistic rules that underlie our language, and the writer or the speaker can fashion the sentence in such a way that you get the appropriate meaning based on what they're trying to convey. And that, that's just the way we understand our language. Well, it works the same way in Hebrew. The word for day in Hebrew is the word yom, Y-O-M. Well, Tommy, the word yom can mean something other than a 24-hour day. And that's true, it can, but it can also mean ordinary day. Yeah, but Tommy, because yom can mean something other than a 24-hour day, it obviously can't mean day in Genesis, so, I mean, you're just wrong about this. Well, it can mean something other than an ordinary day, but it can also mean ordinary day. So if it, has different, if it can have different meanings, there must be linguistic or grammatical rules or constructions that would help us understand what an author or a speaker would want to convey, you know, based on the circumstances. So what we did is we looked through the Old Testament. At every place the, the word yom was used, and this is what you find. When the word day or the word yom is used in a sentence with a number, that occurs 410 times, it always means ordinary day. You know, King David got up on the 15th day of the month without kill the bear. It always means ordinary day. When the words evening and morning are used in a sentence without the word day or without the word yom, that occurs 38 times, it always means ordinary day. When the words evening or morning are used in a sentence with the word day or the word yom, that occurs 23 times, it always means ordinary day. When the word night is used in a sentence with the word day or the word yom, that occurs 52 times, it always means ordinary day. Anybody want to guess what my next slide is? <laughs> Genesis 1, verse 5, night, evening, morning, number, day. What's the word day in Genesis 1, verse 5 mean? Ordinary day. Verse 8, evening, morning, number day. Verse 13, evening, morning, number day. Verse 19, you starting to see a pattern here? What's God trying to tell us in Genesis 1? Ordinary 24-hour day. The word day or the word yom is used over 2,300 times in the Old Testament. It is only questioned in Genesis chapter 1. Well, Tommy, you, just, you, have, you, you must admit that you're not an authority in this by any means, and I'm not. I do not present myself as an authority in this. I do not have advanced degrees in, in ancient languages or, or linguistics. I do not present myself as an authority in that, in that setting. I am very well read. I'm very conversant on this topic, but I do not present myself as an academic authority in that sense. Okay, well, Tommy, in, in that sense, you've already admitted you're not an authority, so you really shouldn't be talking about this. You should just stick to medicine and life sciences because that's your area of expertise because you're obviously not an authority in any way. And because you're not an authority, I'm going to tell you, you're just as wrong as you can be about this yom stuff. And the reason I know that is because I've had an entire semester of Hebrew. <laughs> and my textbook says you're wrong and my professor says you're wrong, so you're wrong. And that's come up a number of times. 
And my only response to that is this. There's only one thing more dangerous than somebody with one semester of Hebrew. That's somebody with one semester of medical school, okay? You don't want them doing your heart transplant, right? I was at one church sometime in the past. I said, there's only one thing more dangerous than somebody with one semester of Hebrew. And the pastor jumped up and said, yeah, somebody with two. But... And I wrote that down. That was a good one. So in case you've had a semester of Hebrew, what did the writer of Genesis intend to convey? As far as I know, there's no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writer of Genesis 1 through 11 intended to convey to readers the idea that, A, creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. B, the figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provided by simple addition a chronology from the beginning of the world up to later stages in the biblical story. See, Noah's flood was understood to be worldwide and extinguished all human and animal life except for those in the ark. Professor James Barr, Hebrew scholar and oral professor of the interpretation of holy scriptures at Oxford University. Would you agree that ascending to that academic position indicates this man is a world-class scholar? I certainly would. He said there's no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who would even begin to suggest the intent of the author, the intent of the writer, was to convey the idea of six ordinary 24-hour days. That's what the language means. There is no discussion. That's what it means. That's what the author intended. That's the meaning. Having said that, Professor Barr believes in the millions of years. He's what you call a hostile witness. He says the actual language means six days, but he doesn't believe the Bible should be interpreted literally. Who created language? God. I mean, could Adam and Eve speak to each other? At least initially, right? Okay, here the guys laugh first. It, it usually takes two or three seconds, but here the, the guys beat you, ladies, just slightly, Okay. If God had used a period of time other than day, did he have at his disposal the means to communicate that? Sure. There are words in biblical Hebrew that are very suitable for communicating long periods of time or indefinite time. None of those words is used in Genesis 1. I wonder why. Maybe he meant day. Six days, yeah. Six truly, really days, yeah. You sure it says six days? Yeah. I wonder why he took so long. <laughs> Tommy, you people have answers in Genesis. You know, you're, you're putting God in a box. You're telling me I've got to believe God created everything in six ordinary days? You're telling me, that, you're telling me that's what I've got to believe? You're putting God in a box. Tommy, you're limiting God. And again, sometimes I just kind of go, man, what are you talking about? Limiting God? Let me ask you a question. Could God have created everything in six hours? Six minutes? Six seconds? I agree with you all three times. My God is so awesome and so incredible and so powerful, he could have used any time period he chose. Guess what, folks? I am not limiting God. You know what I'm doing? I'm believing him. It's not a question of what he could have done. It's a question of what he plainly said he did. He said six days. I'm good with that. But let's go to this question. I wonder why he took so long. Where do we get our idea for a week? You know, there are things in our physical world that help us define or help us understand certain time periods. Like what in our physical world constitutes a day? It's one rotation of the earth. It's got nothing to do with the day or night. It's got which one, one rotation of the earth. What's a month? Moon goes around the earth. What's a year? Earth goes around the sun. What's a week? Seven days, right? Where do we get that idea? How about here? Exodus 20, 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven, earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Folks, you accept the gap theory? You think there was a million years between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2? You got a problem. It's called Exodus 20, 11. God said, in case you weren't paying attention back in Genesis, let me tell you again, I did everything in six days. You know, this is actually part of the Ten Commandments. Part of the fourth commandment. Are the Ten Commandments good moral teaching? Are the Ten Commandments inspired of God? What else are the Ten Commandments? They're written by God. I saw Charlton Heston bring those tablets down from that mountain. 
God said, in case you weren't paying attention, I'm going to... He wrote it down for us and we don't believe him. Christians are often inclined to take the young earth position simply because it appears to be the plainest reading of the Bible. Well, that sounds good, but Don Stoner believes in the Big Bang in the millions of years. But he says, if you just read your Bible, it sure looks like you know, God meant six days, but that's not really what he meant. Paddle pun from Wheaton College. It's apparent that the most straightforward understanding of the Genesis record, without regard to all the hermeneutical considerations suggested by science, is that God created heaven and earth in six solar days. The most straightforward understanding is six solar days. What prevents him from accepting that? Well, these scientific considerations. Charles Hodge in his systematic theology wrote this. The church has been forced more than once to alter her interpretation of the Bible to accommodate the discoveries of science. But this has been done without doing any violence to the scriptures or in any degree impairing their authority. Is that a true statement? I don't think it is. In order to demonstrate that, I am now going to take the contrary position, which, by the way, my wife says I excel at. Okay. Now, the days in Genesis are no longer days. They're millions of years or billions of years or gazillions of years or scads and scads of years. And I don't know why anybody would care. And you people answer us in Genesis. You're just making a mountain out of a molehill because, frankly, it doesn't matter what you believe about Genesis. Just love Jesus. Everything's going to be fine. It doesn't matter what you think about it. It, just, it, does, it doesn't really matter. I don't even know why you guys care. You sort of take a break or take a Tylenol or whatever because it's just you make it, it nobody cares it doesn't affect anything else in scripture you can believe anything you want to about the days in Genesis so starting now the days in Genesis aren't days those days are millions of years because it doesn't affect anything else in the Bible right question how old was Adam when he died how old was Adam when he died you just didn't want to be the first one to say it I know you, you weren't, you weren't going to show off now Adam was created on what day of creation week six now I know we shouldn't assume things but for the sake of this discussion, Adam was created on day six of creation week. Is it safe to then assume he was alive on day seven? If the days in Genesis aren't ordinary days, how old was he when he died? Because he couldn't have been 930. And guess what? If he wasn't 930 when he died, you just did yourself a tremendous favor. You really did. Because you know those parts of the Bible where it says, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so? You know, those are your favorite parts, I know, right? You know, those are the parts you tell your Sunday school teacher you read, but you really don't because you can't pronounce the names anyway. Guess what? You know what you can do with all those? If Adam wasn't 930 when he died, you know what you can do with every genealogy in the Bible? You can toss them because they're worthless. And you do have the authority to do that because 2 Timothy 3.16 says some scriptures given by inspiration of God. No? Pray tell, what does it say? It says all script, all scripture. You mean even those begats? You know what I say? Especially those begats. Those begats draw a direct line between Adam and who? If that line's broken, we got some serious problems. Well, let's go. Let's, let's move on. We don't want to get too, the we don't want to bring religion into this too much, right? Okay. Uh, now, thorns came as a result of what? The fall. Man's sin brought thorns. Right? That's what Scripture says. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Well, that's a problem. Because the days in Genesis aren't real days. Well, why not? Well, look at these rocks. It always goes back to the rocks. See, these rocks, these rocks are obviously millions of years old. Here's the proof that rocks are millions of years old, so the days in Genesis aren't real days. God said geologic time period. So here's your proof the days can't be days. You know what you find in some of those rock layers? You find fossil thorns. They're said to be anywhere between 360 and 416 million years old. So how can you have fossil thorns for hundreds of millions of years before man even evolved to have sinned to have brought thorns? Well, let's move on because, like I say, we don't want to bring religion into this too much. Okay. Plants were created on what day of creation week? About the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, what about the birds and the flying insects? I just got a kink in my shoulder all of a sudden. Okay, can plants live 24 hours without sunlight? 24 hours? No problem. Can plants live an entire geologic age without sunlight? No. Ah, but I know you're about to raise an objection. I'm glad you thought this through. There's already light there. From what day? From the first day. 
Now, we're not told the, the specific source, but it wasn't sunlight as we understand it. It may have been S-O-N light instead of S-U-N. But nonetheless, we're not told the source. Maybe the light from day one was adequate to drive photosynthesis. So we'll set our day four objection aside. Do certain plants need birds and or insects to reproduce? Can they live two days without those creatures? Can they live two geologic time periods without those creatures? You see, you've got a disconnect. You've got two accounts of origins, and they do not agree. You've got man's account, you've got God's account. These do not agree. If one of them's right, the other one's what? Wrong. And if man's view of origins is right, you don't have one problem with God, you've got two. He's not only forgetful, he's incompetent. He can't remember the order he did things, he can't remember how long it took him. He just can't figure anything out. Well, let's move on, because like I say, we don't want to bring religion into this too much. Was Noah's flood a global event? Did it cover all the earth, or was it just like a little local flood, like localized to Mesopotamia or something? I mean, did it cover everything, or was it just a local flood? It covered everything? So you don't believe it was a local flood? Okay. Well, guess what, folks? If the days in Genesis aren't days, you cannot logically argue for a global flood. How do you know it was global? How do you know it was global? God's word tells you. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. Folks, I am not a hydrologist nor a geologist. But I do know one thing about water. It runs downhill. And when it says the mountains were covered, what does it mean? It means the mountains were covered. I've talked to any number of secular geologists and they say, Tommy, I just don't understand you Christians. You believe that Bible is actually true and you believe in this whole thing about the flood. There is no evidence that the earth was ever, you know, inundated by a global cataclysmic flood. Actually, there is evidence. You know where it is? It's everywhere. <laughs> How about beings of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth? But guess what, folks? That only works if the days in Genesis are ordinary days. This is how it works. Well, Tommy, the days of Genesis can't be days. Why? Well, so these rocks, these rocks are obviously millions of years old. You know, so God said day, but, you know, he meant long geologic time periods. So in those six days of creation, that's when these rocks and all these fossils were laid down. If that's your proof, if that's part of your proof that the days in Genesis aren't days, you know what cannot happen after those rocks are laid down? There cannot be a global cataclysmic catastrophic flood because you know what it's going to do to your rock layers? It's going to resort and reshuffle them. Then your rocks would be on the basis of what? The flood. If you want to argue these rocks were laid down over millions of years, you have to then argue that the flood was only local because a global flood is going to resort and reshuffle your rocks. There are a group of people, we call them old earth creationists. It's really kind of a strange way of looking at things because they reject evolution, but they accept, they, they reject what the biological science people say, but they accept what the physical scientists people say. They, 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 they accept the millions of years, but they reject evolution. You know the biggest problem they have? called the flood you should go to their website and read their books and the way they try to twist scripture out all recognizable form to make themselves and you believe the flood was only a local event folks it really comes down to one simple question when did god start telling you the truth really how long was jonah and the great fish three thousand years right how long did they march around that city But see, nobody argues about the meaning of day in those passages. It's just in Genesis. Well, Tommy, don't you know that God's time is not our time? Tommy, God's time is not our time. Tommy, don't you know that one day is with the Lord's a thousand years? Boy, I can't count the number of people that brought me 2 Peter 3.8 to tell me how wrong I am about Genesis. I mean, it's, it's just it, over 30 years, I just can't count the number. But nobody who's ever brought me this verse to tell me how wrong I am, and this is without exception, nobody... None of those people have ever read me the entire verse. You know what the rest of the verse says? A thousand years of the day. See, it just cancels that right out. See, this is not a verse you can use as a proof text for the meaning of the word yom in Genesis. That's in Hebrew. This is in Greek. That, 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 you, you just can't do that. Now, let me ask you a question. How long was Jesus in the tomb? What if I told you it's 3,000 years? Would that upset you? But guess what? It makes far more sense to use 2 Peter 3.8 to say the days in the, in the Gospels aren't ordinary days because that's at least Greek to Greek. See, the context of this verse is God is outside of time. 
But even if we grant this objection, let's just be as kind as possible and say each day in, in the creation week is not an ordinary day. It's a thousand years. So creation week is not six days. It's 6,000 years. Are you any closer to making evolution work? See, at the end of the day, this argument doesn't even make sense when you think it through. You see, if those rocks were laid down over millions of years, you've got fossils in lots of those layers, which would then indicate we've got millions of years of pain, death, killing, disease, thorn, struggle, suffering, extinction before man could have evolved to have sinned to have cursed this creation. You've got a disconnect. Either God created in six days as a perfect creation where there's no death, man's disobedience brought death, or death has always been here. There is no way to straddle that line. Your starting point has to be one, one or the other. If you're dealing with Scripture in such a way that you bear in mind that God himself says what is written. But since God is speaking, it is not fitting for you to wantonly turn his word in the direction you wish it to go. 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. As we get ready to close this session, I just want to share with you one of the innumerable instances in my own life that God has a sense of humor. Uh, I've got a wife and three daughters, which I know God thinks is hysterical. Uh, but it's been quite a time saver because I haven't had my own opinion since 1989. <laughs> Uh, I conservatively estimate it saves me 23 to 26 minutes a day. It is quite a time saver. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, a few years ago, Answers in Genesis called and asked if we would consider coming on board full-time. And Liz and I felt like that's what the Lord would have us do. So I started the process of withdrawing from my medical practice and trying to figure out how we're going to move to Kentucky. So we eventually bought a house in Kentucky. And I wanted to get Liz and the girls moved up there as quick as I could because it was going to take me a few more months to do all the procedures to withdraw from my medical practice. But anyway, the, the week we were going to close on the house up in Kentucky, I got this rocket scientist idea. I said, Liz, why don't we rent a U-Haul and take the first load of furniture up? That way we at least kind of start getting the house in some kind of order. And It's been eight years and that still hadn't happened, but nonetheless, um, you know, we at least take the first load of furniture up. Now, I don't know if anybody here has rented a U-Haul lately, but maybe you've seen them at the rental, rental lots. You've passed one on the, on the interstate or something. You know, they have these big pictures on the side. You'll come to Philadelphia and see the Liberty Bell, or you'll come to Texas and see the Alamo, you know, those kind of things. I want to show you the U-Haul I got. It's funnier than you think. Did you know the Hagerman horse grazed Idaho's ancient savanna over three million years ago? <laughs> Fossils indicate this zebra-like species continued to evolve until 10,000 years ago when all traces of the creature suddenly vanished. America's first horse, was it a zebra, was it a horse? Learn more about the real story of the American horse at uhaul.com. Well, I was working that day, and my wife went to pick up the U-Haul. And let's just say she was not as vigilant as I would have preferred that she would have been, okay? So she drives it home and pulls it into the drive, and my three daughters, you know, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, come out to see the truck. So they see the truck. They start laughing hysterically, saying, we can't wait for Daddy to get home. So I come home that afternoon. I was just, you know, I was just driving home. And I was driving down the street, and I saw the U-Haul in the drive. I said, great, let's pick up the U-Haul. We start loading that bad boy. Everything's fine. I turned into the drive, and my three daughters were sitting on the edge of the driveway. They were laughing hysterically. Now, this is what I said. Lord, thank you. Thank you for letting me come home just at this moment. I mean, I said, I love the last 20 years how many birthday parties and piano recitals, and how often have I been stuck on collar, been stuck at the hospital, and I miss these precious moments with my daughters. Thank you for letting me, look at the joy on their faces. Thank you for letting me come home just at this moment. Lord, thank you for giving me this precious time with my daughters. So I pulled in and jumped out, and I said, Girls, what's caused you to be so happy? And they said, Read the truck. Well, I went over and read the truck. Let's just say my daughters were not disappointed. The last thing I remember, I was like speaking in tongues, rocking back in the fetal position in the driveway. My wife had to like get the hose pipe out and hose me down. I finally kind of came to myself enough that I jumped up, ran to the house, called the U-Haul place, and they had just closed. Therefore, I had to leave my medical practice. 
and enter full-time creation ministry in an evolution U-Haul. <laughs> Folks, it ain't easy being me, okay? Go to our website, www.answersingenesis.org. Just type in the phrase millions of years or carbon-14. Folks, we want you to get this. This is a very, very important issue. You need to get this issue settled in your own heart and your own mind. People always ask, well, Tommy, how do you think the earth is? We say roughly 6,000 years. Where do you get that idea? Well, so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so. You take the biblical genealogies and chronologies, you study those, you add them up, you come to roughly 6,000 years. My favorite work on the subject is this book. It's called Chronology of the Old Testament by Floyd Nolan Jones. This is an amazing book. This is one of my most favorite resources that AIG carries. It's not by one of our authors, but this is an amazing book. It, I tell people it's sort of part history book and part detective story. If you've got questions, you've got issues about the age of the earth, this is one of the very best resources I could recommend. It's very readable. My family my wife and daughters and I have gone through this book twice, cover to cover, as a family Bible study. you got questions of the age of the earth. This is an amazing resource. Don't forget our Answers book series, particularly Answers book one, has chapters on carbon-14 dating and the so-called long-age methods. Our Answers book for teens, this is a collection of these two volumes of, of questions we actually get from teenagers at our youth conferences. And a lot of times these are questions and issues that adults don't have to deal with. You know, what about the Bible and sexuality? What about homosexual activity? You know how Christians are always portrayed as haters? You know, the media always says if you take a biblical morality stance on anything, you're a hater or you're such and such a phobe. Well, our young people see that. We want them to understand that taking a biblical stance on an issue does not make you a hater, even though that's what the culture, that's what society tells them. And the most important chapter in these two volumes is simply this. And I get asked this question all too often at youth conferences. That could have been, that's that Dr. Mitchell. How could God love somebody as messed up as me? Folks, we want them to have answers. Don't forget our answers book set for kids for ages 4 to 10. These are amazing resources. You ever notice how sometimes the littlest kids ask the most difficult theologic questions? And I'm just going to tell you honestly, I hate this series of books. Because they weren't available when my kids were that age. Where was Ken Ham and the crew when I needed them, right? My wife and I tap dance around some really tough questions when our kids were young. Parents and grandparents, we don't want you tap dancing around these questions. Simple one or two paragraph sound biblical answers to some of the really tough questions our little kids ask. How do we know the Bible is true? Lots of books on apologetics. One of our newest resources is Dragons, Legends and Lore of Dinosaurs. You know there are a lot of historical writings over the last couple of thousand years of creatures that uh, were frequently called dragons or fearsome beasts or great beasts that I submit in our day and age would be called dinosaurs. People really aren't aware of these historical writings. And these were not, you know, this is not fantasy. These are actual the people who are writing historical uh, accounts of their village, of their country, or people who are uh, explorers or merchants. And they just, you know, came across these creatures and wrote very detailed descriptions. It's an amazing, amazing work. A lot of resources for kids. And don't forget our YouTube special. The last thing I want to mention before we go to break is this. I have a lot, wear a lot of hats at AIG. I'm a speaker, I'm a writer, I'm a researcher, I'm part of the editorial review board. But I'm also what they call technical liaison between the outreach staff and the IT staff. I mean, you know, I'm the, I'm the technology guy. I tend to check on, like, if a new software comes out, I'm the guy that tests it, checks it, makes sure it's good for the other speakers. Um, and even though I love technology, you know, I'm a Mac guy. You've seen that, you know. And if you're not a Mac person, you need to get saved and get one because it's very important. <laughs> But, I mean, I've got my iMac and my iPod and my iPhone and my iPad, and I work for an iBoss, and I go home to see my iWife, and I drive an iCar, and I eat at iHop. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thoroughly assimilated. But one of the things I have steadfastly refused to do over the years is this social media stuff. I frankly just don't get it, right? But, I mean, and, I, and to this point, I still refuse to twip or tweep or twerp or whatever that is. You know, I had oatmeal for breakfast. I don't care what I had for breakfast. If you care, move out of your mom's basement immediately and get a life, okay? Now, I don't Twitter, but I have started a Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash AIG Tommy Mitchell. You can go to my Facebook page and find out what's going on at the museum, what goes on with our travels. You'll be able to find out lots more about the Ark Encounter Project once we finally get ground broken. Hopefully in the next week or so we're going to be able to get started. You'll be able to really find out what's going on with uh, my Titanic cribbage battles with Ken Ham. A lot of really cool things that you can find out. So please go to my Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash AIG Tommy Mitchell. Please go to my page and like me. I promise I'll like you back. And with that, over to you, boss. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. 
Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.